0: I've always been fascinated by you in the sense that I'm not going to say you're the original data podcast, but you are one half of one of the longer running data podcasts. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And, um, you know, whether you're currently on hiatus, a break retired or so on, it's been, it's been like a little while since you've had your, your most recent episode, but I wanted to kind of, to ask you why a podcast and why did you start that in the first place? And I know it's a loaded question because I'm asking you this on a data podcast and I'll get to me in a second, but like what made you decided you wanted to do a podcast?
1: It it just happened in a way because we, so the, the original story is that I had a blog first and that was many years ago when blogs were a thing and, um, as I was uh, blogging, I decided at some point—I don't remember exactly how—to um, have an inter—to interview Moritz. To um, ah yes, the the goal was to—I wanted to show to the world that it was possible to be a data visualization consultant, <laughs> independent consultant, and back then it it was like very very rare. So I thought if I interview Moritz um 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 yeah maybe in, in the future there will be more more consultants and freelancers right so we we recorded yes we recorded the interview and i posted the interview in my blog and i think we did a couple if i remember correctly and after we did that we were like oh that that was fun <laughs> yeah. and uh back then podcasts were just starting and uh, we were like, why don't we try a podcast? That was so much fun. And if it doesn't work, who, who cares? And and that's the origin story on I mean, it. I wish it it was more, I mean, uh, I don't know, planned or something. We just felt that it was fun to talk. We we felt that there was probably some chemistry there. And uh, we kept going over the years. Just that.
0: I mean, that's the, honestly, that's the story of so many things where people are... are- you know especially when something's built ahead of steam and sort of gains some notoriety like data stories people are looking to that as like what's the, what's the secret origin of all this and so many times it's we decided to have a podcast we liked having conversations and wanted to know more
1: yeah yeah and and what is funny is that at the beginning we were like we had some minimal set of conversations about how the podcast podcast should be but we Pretty quickly, zeroed in on uh, interviews. And uh, I think originally we had in mind different formats, but we were like, oh, this is so easy. We just get, well, in reality, it's not that easy, <laughs> as, as I guess you know. But uh, it we felt like, oh, we invite someone, we, we, we want to explore a topic, and uh, we have a conversation with this person. And it just worked really well.
0: I think one of the unexpected delights for me is so many of the podcast episodes that I have loved doing the most are ones where I didn't really have a lot of expectations. Sometimes, you know, someone very well for one particular thing. And other times you have someone it's like, I sort of have cursory knowledge of you. I don't really know you that well as a person. I think you're interesting. And I really just want to have this conversation. And that's the thing I tell people, like, this is secretly just for me. Like I'm doing this because I want to talk to people. And if you're enjoying it, spectacular, (laughs) but it's like at the end of the day, like my listenership, I'm sure is nowhere approaching what yours, yours has been, but like, I'm doing this because I enjoy it. And honestly, it started out, uh, I didn't have very much of a reputation now, at least sort of in tableau circles, I'm a three-time tableau visionary, which is, you know, sort of up there in that field. But like at the time I didn't have like much behind me. I just did this because I had come out of a conference. I had had a great time meeting people and seeing some of my friends for the first time in person. And Mm -hmm. I had some really like nice dinners and talks. And I was like, oh, I really miss that. Like, I want more of that. How do I squeeze more of that out of everyday life?
1: Yeah, yeah, totally. I have to say, I mean, I always said that it's a labor of love and uh, you you approach this as uh, with a lot of curiosity, right? So curiosity... Typically for us, it's always been like, oh, we want to know more about this and who is the right person for that. And uh, um, most of the episodes were like that, like uh, starting from a topic or an idea and then thinking who is the best person to talk about these things, mostly because we want to learn about it, (laughs) right? And uh, yeah, totally. And also what you mentioned, the idea that sometimes you have a conversation and you're completely blown away and uh i can recall so many where you it's interesting sometimes you don't have any expectation and and you're blown away sometimes the opposite happens too you you think like wow it's gonna be amazing and it's not right so it's um yeah it's normal um but i i feel like I've, i've learned so much with talking with uh so many different people. I think one thing that I really enjoyed is um, to see how around data visualization, you can have people with so many different approaches, different backgrounds. And especially for me that I I come from academia, I have an academic, um, let's say, upbringing, so to speak. Uh, It's been always very, very useful to just... um, see how how much more there is out there right when you start interviewing people that have completely different kind of backgrounds um it's way it's so much richer than you expect and uh yeah i think that's one of the biggest values
0: i'm uh i'm sort of fascinated by all of the different perspectives right you've sort of got um, you're more artistic and holistic end of the spectrum, like you're Nadia mm-hmm. Bremers and them. You have uh, the academia where you're more statistically based and and probably a lot more rigorous than what I have in my mm-hmm. daily life. You yeah. have sort of the uh, the Ham and Egger practitioners like me, where we're
1: yeah, we're in the exactly. middle of sort of
0: client work daily and trying to have yeah. sort of practical, you know, data solutions. I mean, there's and and the profession is young enough that while you're teaching it now, you know, to college students, there's many of us. I mean, I'm 42. Uh, I had no data training at all in school. And there are people mm-hmm. now that are coming out of school that have had a full, you know, education in uh, in data, both in a theoretical sense, a mathematical mm-hmm. sense, mm-hmm. and a visual sense. Uh, so you, you yes. have all these people now mixing together in all these different fields. And it creates a lot of different perspectives, a lot of new ideas. Um, There's sort of a lot of orthodoxy. There's a lot of people out there challenging Mm -hmm. orthodoxy. So Mm -hmm. it makes it a really fun space to be, right?
1: Uh, Totally. Uh, I have to say that even within the academic setting, the thing that always attracted me to data visualization is that even within academia, it's already very heterogeneous because you have the... I mean, a lot of visualization happening in academia is typically in computer science, people that are in computer science departments. So you may think that it's very technical, only very technical, right? But if you look, there are people who do the algorithms, people who do the design, people who do the studies that are more like experimental. But then even within experimental, there are other people who, are, who do the very quantitative statistics and this type of stuff and then you have the more qualitative stuff you have the theorists it's um uh, it's really mixed and that's what attract one of the things that attracted me uh from the very beginning also because i don't know i feel like i i like to have different type of knowledge and uh uh there there's also um I don't know. I really like the mix. I like the mix. Uh, a little bit of technical, a little bit of, uh, I don't know, uh, less technical. It's uh, it's fun. It's fun to have. And also people with many different personalities, by the way. So over the years, I met uh, really incredible people that do completely different type of work.
0: I mean, that not that the truth? I mean, I've had colleagues that were French majors. I've had colleagues that were Air Force pilots. I mean, you, yeah. you you see the the entire spectrum there and someone's background is in no way an indicator of which direction they're going to go in the field. I remember. Yeah, not um, at all. An Air Force pilot who you would expect someone that's used to dials and gauges and quick indicators in front of them who likes to write white papers. And it's like, that's <laughs> not what you're expecting out of that. You're expecting, you yeah. know, you know, you're expecting Maverick and Iceman and that sort of thing. Um, Yeah, yeah what was your gateway drug to data? Like what, what was your entry point? What got you into this either personally first or professionally? How did that happen?
1: Uh, let me think. I think I, I got, I think through, through visualization, I think I, at some point, when I was much younger, I discovered the field of information visualization and, um, And the idea of giving a visual form to abstract data so that you can interpret it and understand something about the world. I don't know, just it clicked immediately the first time I saw it. And probably there is a part there is partly the aesthetics, right? There's an aesthetic component, just when if you've never seen anything about data visualization imagine a world where data visualization doesn't exist right and they show you something the first time you're like whoa what is this and that that's the way i felt back then and uh so i just fell in love with the concept with the concept and uh as i said partly probably for the aesthetics but even more for this idea that you can look at this very abstract picture and infer things about the world, right? And increase your knowledge somehow. That's what I always find. I think that the cognitive aspect of visualization is the thing that uh, always intrigued me and still intrigues me, honestly.
0: I think it's uh, it's interesting to see the field, you know, growing and developing and, and sort of constantly changing, I mean, I, uh, Steve Wexler is sort of one of my mentors, one of the co-authors, the big book of dashboards and the big picture. And I watch his work evolving as he writes new books about sort of best practices and sort of inspiration for sort of better charts. And I also think about, you know, just, I mean, we've all seen like sort of the, uh, the wild 3D Excel bar charts, you know, where it's. Sort of the technology came along faster in that case than actually people knowing the best applications for it, where you could make stuff very easily that would often be very opaque or confusing to the users. So Mm -hmm. I've always been fascinated as the I I consider sort of data visualization to be like a practice field, not unlike medicine or law Mm -hmm. where you have to continually learn throughout it. You never like learn it and you're done because it's constantly sort of the, the landscape is uh, changing and growing, but like you could be very proficient at a tool, whatever your tool of choice is, you know, there's so Mm -hmm. many of them out there and create stuff that's wholly ineffective for an audience, Mm -hmm. or you could be very good at understanding what an audience needs, but not have the right tools in your tool belt to properly express the ideas that you're needing to get out there. It's, It's Mm -hmm. very much like a uh, sort of hand-in-glove situation.
1: Yeah, uh, totally. Even though, um, let me think. The the practice is really important. I feel like that there's so much to say. It's hard to unpack because the relationship between what you need to know, irrespective of which tool you use, but also how the tool you use influence the way you do database such a complex uh, interaction there Um, also because you know what sometimes by using certain tools you discover new ways to think about visualization so the two things really interact very closely Uh, i think it's evident that if you don't have the right knowledge you can have the best tool and you won't, you most probably won't do good this, right? <laughs> you you really need um, certain type of knowledge. On the other hand, um, tools matter. I think they matter a lot. And uh, different people have different kind of tools. I think what really matters. So one one recommendation that I used to give people now that I think about it is that it's not really important which tool you use, but it's really important that you come, you become really proficient with one tool. I think I have seen people do incredible things with tools that you I would never use, but they're just super proficient with them, right? Um, I really believe that it's important to know one tool really well and that you learn how to express yourself with that tool. I think there's something special in learning a tool really well um yeah and as i said i think my experience is also that certain tools help you think in a certain way Uh, matter of fact i know you you are also a fan of tableau like like myself Um, i think what is great in tableau and and there are other great things that other tools have is that it helps you think in ways that translate to your practice, even if you were to use other tools, right? So it's not uncommon for me to say, it actually happened to me very recently, say I'm designing a new module for something that I wanna teach in my in one of my visualization related courses, right? And I find that the way I organize the module is heavily influenced by the way I think about visualization when I build visualizations with Tableau, which is pretty remarkable, right?
0: I mean, that's, that's not unsurprising, right? Like if you, yeah, if you learn to read and you learn that through reading like Japanese manga in English, even you would think right to left, you know, it's like yeah. you would have been influenced by the way that you would read you'd still read top to bottom but you would read right to left and i mean
1: yeah.
0: and that would influence uh, also you know jumping over your the way you presented data visualization you would right hand yeah. stack things you would think other people are also going to read right to left um yeah. so the perspective with which we learn things like if you use tableau as one of your primary tools for a lot of your stuff or at least for a specific kind of work that would also be part of your line of thinking how to solve specific problems and it's what you were saying earlier about different tools right like um there's the old adage when the only tool you have is a hammer every problem looks like a nail well you know tableau is amazing for visualization and it's pretty easy to get started but it's not like a statistical whiz tool like some tools are way better for a lot of that stuff Fortunately, that's yeah. not the field I'm in. So it's not really a problem for me. But uh, for other people, it may be more of a concern. And that's why I like sort of aligning the correct tool per se with what you're needing to use it for can be extremely useful. And if that was what you needed for your particular role or for your organization, you probably wouldn't end up using Tableau. So you, you, I wouldn't be needed anyway. But you know it's a it's a really apt point that you know the the tool can influence your perspective and how you think about the data as well
1: yeah i think i mean um yeah one one could even say that uh on the other hand there's always a risk that you become you become blind to certain things right uh, that's a good ant- uh, counter argument but i still believe that There is a lot of value in learning one tool really well. This doesn't prevent you from learning other tools after you learn one tool really well. And I think it's true for any craft, right? Most artists out there start from learning one tool really, really well. You can learn piano and then learn guitar, right? Um, So I, and I I think that the parallel with music maybe is, is a good one, right? The, the If you learn, learn how to play guitar really well, once you get to learn piano, quite a few things transfer transferred there, right? So I think it's similar here.
0: I think that's a, a really valid point. Like if you were starting piano after having learned guitar or vice versa, you're yeah. going to skip some steps that otherwise would be foundational. Yeah. If yeah. you're in the field of data visualization, um, A lot of the theory behind it is going to carry over between different tools. Some of yeah. the practice of using that particular tool may be similar as well. If I were to say switch over and start using Power BI, I'd have to learn DAX, for example. So that would be something yeah. where I'm learning a whole new syntax, but it may have a lot of similarities to stuff like T-SQL or something like that, where I can lift from something I already know. So in many cases, you're not starting from an absolute zero and you're able to lift a lot of your understandings about, you know, good methods of aggregation, for example, like that's something that's universal across all tools. How can you properly aggregate your data in such a way that you don't lose, you know, the resolution of your detail or at the same time, accidentally, um, multiply your data to create inaccurate data. You know, there's, There's so many aspects of that that are to be considered when, you know, sort of uniting data models with data visualization that Mm -hmm. um, are are sort of the early mistakes most people make in their careers and then uh, occasionally make later in their careers too.
1: (laughs) Yeah, totally.
0: So right now, you know, you're doing a lot of work with machine learning and AI and also sort of data visualization on real world phenomena. Like Mm -hmm. what are, do you have any examples of like right now you're, I was reading up on your profile. You're talking about yeah. how data visualization can either help or present or per like prevent us from thinking effectively about real world phenomena. Do you have any like really solid examples that you teach in your class um where data visualization has been a hindrance or alternatively I'll throw an alternate out there. Um mm-hmm. exam- like particular things that you find students often get hung up on like this is a thing that students typically struggle with.
1: When I'm teaching Visualization concepts or or what?
0: You know what? Like player's choice, however you want to take it.
1: <laughs> yeah, I, I can go in so many different directions. So let, let me pick the first one that comes to mind. Um I mean, maybe this is obvious, but as an academic, when you when you go in class, especially the first years when I was teaching, you think that you can go in class and start with all the all the beautiful concepts that we know about data right? You should do this, you should do that. Then we, we we also put a lot of emphasis on breaking it down to the theory of visual encoding. So we look at kind of like Bertin kind of thing, uh, the marks, the channels, which channel works best, in which situation, the data types. And you think that magically, and, and you think that, oh, wow, this is going to blown away the students. And magically once they see these beautiful connections they will be able to translate they they will trans this will translate into to some great practice right and no not at all right so zero is is not it's not even just you, you are a little disappointed there's zero transfer from teaching students <laughs> <laughs> the theory <laughs> zero absolutely zero it's it's like um Um, I don't know, after a few years I learned, but it's like you think that once you explain this whole idea of channels, marks, and uh, you break it down, you you show a chart, you break it down into its components, and then you remix it with a different arrangement, right? You expect that it's such a strong concept and it's so generalizable to pretty much any visualization out there. It's amazing. No, it doesn't translate at all. So that's one of the things that I think the students in my experience have been um, struggling the most. and this influenced over the years um, massively the way I teach data visualization even in a, in, a, in an academic context where you you aim at conveying um, some, um, information and knowledge that is a long um right that is generalizable and is going to stay there forever right or at least for decades and uh, it doesn't transfer so you really need to find a different way to teach these things you need a lot of practice a lot
0: so repetition is really foundational in sort of hammering some of this home like it's not enough to study it you have to like do it and make mistakes and Start to understand yeah. what works.
1: Yeah, you also need the right practice, I think. I think that what I learned is that you have to ideate uh exercises somehow, or I, I like to call it activities that help people to figure out in practice what this abstract concept means, right? So, one thing that we do, for instance, is I I take a very simple data set, right? And I start saying oh, this is one way to represent these, these few data points with these values. Now try to think uh 20 different ways in which this can be represented. I don't care. I don't care if it's a good or a bad way. That's not the point. Just create as many as you can, right? And at the beginning, the students are completely paralyzed. So you say, okay, you don't know how to do it. Uh, I'll show you a second way, right? And then they start getting it. It's like, why don't you think about, there, there are these channels, just use another channel. There's position, there's there's different marks, there's different symbols. Right? And then they get it, and then they do it over and over again, right? That, that's another thing. That I see. Introducing judgment too early is detrimental. In this, we have this whole idea that some things are correct, incorrect, there's a proper way, a not proper way. And if you introduce these things too early, now you limit the capacity to produce, right? Um, So one thing that stuck with me for a very long time is um, uh, Tamara Mansner, who is um, a renowned professor in visualization from University of British Columbia wrote this uh, foundational textbook in visualization. And in one of the early chapters, if not maybe the first chapter, I don't remember, she's like, one of the biggest problems of visualization is that the design space is huge, right? Even with a few numbers, you can create so many different representations. So you need basically two powers, right? One power is generative power. So if if you don't learn how to generate different solutions, knowing how to narrow it down is useless because you're looking at a too narrow area of the space of possible solutions, right? So I always say that you first have to develop the generative power because if you, again, let me reiterate, if you are not able to generate enough, you will even if you are really good at judging, you are judging on a very narrow space, right? (laughs) So judgment comes second. It's very, very important, but it's not powerful enough if you don't know how to generate and how to explore the design space. And I really think that these two skills go hand in hand. And if you don't develop the generative power, you uh, end up being very limited.
0: I uh. I, I like your approach. I, I, I'm hearing the no pie chart shame early on in uh, teaching um, because pie charts are often loathed, even though they have lots of great applications. But what, what I'm hearing is I'm, I'm hearing your descriptive process and it mirrors so much my personal development because obviously I started you know learning Tableau at work, but really my learning took off once I started doing it on my own outside of work. Um, Where I'm sort of doing more, you know, personal explorations and artistic projects and that sort of thing. But uh, really, for me, and so many people I see that have sort of learned, developed, and grew significantly, one of the early temptations is to show every single trick you know, to show everything Mm -hmm. that you can make with this data. And so Mm -hmm. many times you've created something that says nothing because you've Mm -hmm. said everything And it's Mm -hmm. once you've sort of progressed past the part, look at all that I can do. I can do all these tricks. Let me, let me Mm -hmm. dazzle you with that, which typically doesn't dazzle the people you're wanting to dazzle because they're not going to look at it because you've shown them everything. Uh, You start to pare back. You start to, you start to pull back. And that's (laughs) when sort of the like storytelling, as we describe it, uh, starts to come into effect really. Okay. But what am I actually saying with this? Like I sort of threw it at somebody said, go find a story in here. That was my job. So I need to actually make something that can allow them to, you know, create some kind of happy path through this. If I'm not explicitly telling them, look at these things, at the very least, giving them a trail through maybe different levels of granularity, for example. Like, look at the high concept numbers here. Look at this thing. It's weird. Follow that down the trail, you know, that sort of thing. So it's, uh, you know, take Learning not to present every single aspect of the data, but being able to. So, I, I'm I'm really picking up what you're putting down there, if I'm understanding correctly, or at the very least, I'm doing a hell of a job faking it right now. <laughs>
1: <laughs> yeah, no, I I I think my my main point there is that um, if you want, if you are teaching visualization to a group of students and you want them to be able to. Uh, rather than using rules blindly, you want them to be able to develop, I don't know, for lack of a better word, critical thinking about what works and what doesn't work. Um, They have to be able to, in their head at least, explore many different solutions. And some of them, you would discard them right away, right? But if you can't explore that space, you won't be able to find, uh, I mean, won't be able, it's harder to find really good solutions, right? Um, so I really believe in that, in that generative power and the tools that are necessary, the skills that you need to acquire in order to generate many solutions. Um, the other aspects that you just mentioned about Then narrow it down and simplifying it when you present the results of your work. Um, There's so much to say, (laughs) even there. We could go on for hours, right? But um, I think that in the area of, so maybe I should make a premise. Um, To me, visualization, visual storytelling is one aspect of visualization, one way of doing visualization. And I think visualization can be used for many other uh, goals, I would say. This is not to, to discount the value of visual storytelling, of course. I think it's really important. But to me, visualization can have different different goals, high-level goals, right? Um, for sure, it can be used to to do data analysis and to help people think about something on their own. Right. Even before. In fact, there's no way you can present anything to anybody if you first don't do the analysis on your own. (laughs) Right. So the two things really go hand in hand. And once again, we even in data analysis, we have this generative power aspect, because if you don't know how to look to explore the data from different angles and really generate good questions. Right. Right. Um, your analysis will always be limited, right? If you can't imagine what are the right questions or what is the next question, uh, you won't be able to do really good data analysis, right? Um, But I agree that when we look at communication, one of the biggest troubles is to teach people how to narrow it down, how to make it way easier, and also how to guide the reader, Right, guidance is a is one of those aspects that I feel like it's not we don't talk enough about because uh, in visualization we tend to talk about a lot about the encode visual encoding part, right? We kind of like stop at. I mean, you can see people in visualization that can spend hours and hours to discuss whether it's better to use. Um, I don't know yeah, a pie chart or a bar chart or a dot plot or okay, great, fine. But that's only one aspect of something that is way bigger, right because when you get to communicate something to other people, the um, the baseline is to have a chart that is comprehensible and uh, and that matches the goal, right But apart from that, now you need to guide the reader in the right way, right? And, and that's not easy, and it's not just a matter of showing the right graph. There's also a guidance component there that I think it's uh, absolutely crucial, and it's not very well studied, in my in my opinion. If you look around for information about how to do that part properly, you won't find it very easily. <laughs>
0: Uh, Honestly, for a lot of my personal theory on that, I've gone outside of our medium into a different visual medium. Uh, Scott McCloud has a book, Understanding Comics, uh, which, I mean, comics are a visual medium using visual images juxtaposed in a sequential sequence. So, I mean, we're trying to... Steer someone through a series of images, each of which lends additional context to the previous one. You know, yes. you may have an establishing shot, which is not different from bands, where you're summarizing yes. a big concept. Then you may have yes. like a close-up on a window, you know, and this is not dissimilar to how we're hoping someone interprets our data. So understanding, you know, the concept that these two charts are related. He calls it closure, the the linking yeah. of two concepts where yeah, there yeah. is the an ask of the audience to connect two different ideas and understand that they're forming a complete thought so if you're very sort of intentional about your layout and you know place things in a You know, hopefully logical sequence, you know, that's what I was talking about, like the right hand stack over there. Like if you do something like that, that's going to be confusing to a lot of like Western users, because if you're going to stack something, you'd probably do it on the left because that's where they're going to begin. You know, so thinking about a lot of that and also trial and error and understanding, you know, how people are going to look at stuff. Can really be beneficial but yeah that's where a lot of my my personal visual language has come from which i understand not the most uh, lauded media in many ways but it's it's visual it's pictorial and it relies on sequence so for me it makes a lot of sense
1: no scott McCloud's books are amazing and many people in in visualization um yeah took inspiration from his work it's it's spot on honestly totally
0: Take that, no.
1: <laughs> but
0: uh, but yeah, it's uh, I don't know. It's it's one of those things where that's a very apt point that that's not something that we have placed that much of an emphasis on. Yeah, sort not of at our, all. Yeah, it's we're so we're so interested in the individual chart, right? Like, yes. what is the best application of this? But rarely are we representing something as a single chart uh, in lieu of context, right? Like,
1: but it doesn't exist. There's no. always some context. If you start thinking about it, there's no such thing as a chart without a context. It's only in our in our mind. This right? I mean, it's either so. When you are communicating something with a chart, it's either living in a document or in an environment where something is communicated to somebody else. Right? It's either a presentation or a document of some sort with some text or, uh, yeah, a set of slides or a web page. I mean, the language component is huge, right? And um, we know much less about this, honestly.
0: This This is so true because I'm thinking about it, even when I do like a single chart, it's with accompanying text to say what the chart is. You're if, if you think a single chart is representative without you describing what this is or where it's coming from or why it's there, then you've made a lot of assumptions that you have not passed on to your audience. You know, you're just throwing totally. a chart at them yeah, and totally. hoping they know what you already knew.
1: Well, in fact, one thing that always... That really fascinates me is that now let's do a parallel once again between using visualization for communication and using visual- visualization for data analysis, which is required. Otherwise, you won't be able to communicate anything, right? But even when you use visualization for analysis, right, you as an analyst have ideas and thoughts in mind that allow you to interpret what you see because you know what you are doing. So there's a lot of assumptions there that you can't make when you communicate that thing to somebody else, because you even know all the steps that brought you there. So for you, interpreting what you have in front of you is a completely different process than for somebody else processing what you show to them, right? So that's, uh, I think it's a, it's a really interesting and useful way to, to look at the problem.
0: It, it absolutely is. One of the dilemmas of of data visualization, like any other form of authorship, actually not every other form of authorship, is it's many times you're unable to speak directly to the audience. You know, mm-hmm. you, you can't actually explicitly spell out things, especially if it's, say, something that relies on... Um, you know, live data, something that's constantly changing. You know, if I were to represent historical election data or something, I could get editorial all I want. I can write all the text on there I want because it's not changing. But if it's something that's constantly changing, unless you're just an absolute whiz and are going to create generative text that describes what's happening throughout it, you know, it's something where you're going to have to create systems around what you're putting on the page in such a way that it will always be useful. You know something where yeah. this chart will always be a good chart regardless of what the data goes to next you mm-hmm. know and that's yeah. one of the the challenges you know having the foresight and analysis of what this data represents what the most important things are to represent uh, as a unified system where you're connecting up the different charts in a meaningful sequence and making sure that all of these charts are always useful, and that none of them are just, oh, that was only good for that one time, and it's no longer
1: valid. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And uh, I think another aspect is, I-, I was already mentioning this earlier, this idea of guidance, right? So there are elements that you can, choices that you can make on a graph, or elements that you can add to a graph for the purpose of guiding, guiding people at people's attention to the right part of the graph it's interesting i was having the same conversation today in class right you could have a graph that has no annotations whatsoever and you talk about it right but then it's possible that the things that you want people to read out of the chart form a sequence somehow right you want people to first look at this thing then that thing and then another thing Right, and it's exactly the same chart, right? So and for instance, and the annotation layer that evolves as you are speaking about it or as you are describing these things in uh, in writings is really important. And once again, it's one of those elements that is not, I think we don't really talk uh, as much about. And it's still part, it's still a graphical problem because you have to put graphical objects on top of your chart in order to direct attention to the right elements. And I think in general, the whole idea of how attention is modulated by different elements of a chart is another thing that we don't really talk about too much. We we talk a lot about comprehension, whether something is um, clear, if it's a good mapping, but, uh, once you have that you also need to understand how attention is modulated when people read the chart in fact some of the most problematic charts are charts where people don't lo- don't know where to look they they just don't know where to look and it's a mess right
0: i've i've experienced that sometimes you'll see see a chart that you know by some of these sort of headier data wonks is declared as brilliant and I'll look at it and say, I'm not sure what I'm supposed to understand here. I mean, there are charts that yeah. are very common sort of in our profession that, um, like, uh, dot plots or, or plot and whiskers that are, can be very difficult for, you know, the, the end user. And I mean, it's one of the reasons that understanding who your audience is, is so, uh, vital to oftentimes communicating successfully. Understanding what their objectives are, what they need to understand, what they need to act on. Um, Many of the worst things I've made were made without a clear audience because I was told, these are your ingredients, now data. And you say, but for who? Like what, yeah. what matters to them? What do they need to know out of this? Because I can tell myriad stories, you know, it's one of the, yeah. data storytelling is one of those terms that always slightly triggers me because I, it's been, it's been don't, used don't and abused so frequently.
1: <laughs> but, but I don't like it at all, but... <laughs>
0: but, but, I mean, it's, it's one of those things where it, like, it's not, it's not a term without context and virtue. It's a term that's just been overused, but <laughs> that's, that's where I'm, that's where I'm, I'm, I'm saying this, like, I trust me, like my hackles get up when I hear yeah. it.
1: In fact, I mean, there are a few things to say there. One is that I'm not convinced that every visualization must tell a story. Uh, And I was about to say that a good counter argument to what I just said is that there are contexts in which you don't want to guide people because you want them to experience the journey of figuring out. What is interesting in a, in a given visualization? Maybe sometimes we go in the more artistic realms, but it doesn't have to be exclusively artistic. There are situations where you really want people to figure out what is interesting for them, right? Uh, maybe, maybe the goal of the visualization is to provide an experience to people, right? And um, so I can totally imagine situations where you don't want that level of guidance at all.
0: Right. I mean, it it, dep- it it depends on the application. It depends on the data. Yeah. It, depends, it, yeah, it, exactly. it depends. Yeah, exactly. It depends is the answer, right? It depends.
1: Yeah, yeah, totally.
0: Yeah, at the end of the day. um, Do you have any recent uh, real life examples where you've seen like either, you know, in news or pop culture or anywhere else where data visualization has either been used incredibly effectively or incredibly poorly? Incredibly, incredibly mediocrely <laughs> <laughs> I'm putting you on the hustle. Poorly, on the spot. Well,
1: uh yeah, I think in general, um what we have seen during the COVID pandemic has been pretty depressing. Uh just a jumble of stuff. Um I don't know. Um it's been an interesting very interesting experience in many different ways. Um in a way, it taught me how. Um, sometimes it really doesn't matter what format you decide to use to visualize something. Uh, There's so much more that needs to be processed. Um, Let me see how I, I don't know how to express what I have in mind. I think the realization that you can show a chart, but the problem with the chart is so much about the data or the specific choices of what to compare rather than... Once again, this is similar to what I was saying before. We, we are so much used to discussing, should I use a line chart or I should use a, a something else, right? I should use, a, I don't know, a heat map, or do I use a map here or use a, a set of bar charts? Should I use this color or this other color? Fine, I mean, these are all useful conversations, but you know what? There's no choice in that space that is going to make the choice of which information you decide to, to convey in the first place that is going to fix that problem, right? And um, that's something that I always knew, but during the pandemic, with this huge amount of graphical information we've been flooded with, really made me realize even more acutely, right? It doesn't matter how you, you present something if you don't understand what that single number means and we we saw so many single numbers or sets of numbers you have to understand what that number means and there are so many steps between how that number has been generated and how you interpret it so
0: I mean it, 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 yeah even even the data itself you know if a yeah, with, you know, there's there's classically stories of car fatalities being counted as a COVID fatality because the person also had COVID. It's like yeah, the yeah. the recording methods are another potential point of, of failure. And that's true of any data set, right? Like when we're dealing with data, you know, you can be responsible up to a certain point And then at a, at another point, like, I don't know. I don't know where this data came from. I don't know what this means. And, and, you know, having yeah. the humility many times to represent that. I've, I've done that before in data. It's like,
1: uh, exactly. I'm uncertain yeah. about
0: what this number means or where it came uh, from.
1: Look, I, I, I love that. I love what you're saying. In fact, another thing that I've been thinking about a, a lot lately, in fact, ju- just as a side note, this brought me to really get much more interested about just the idea of w- when you communicate data, what does it mean to communicate certain numbers certain values even before you decide what is the visual representation because if we don't if we don't, if we don't understand what these values mean and if we don't have a good mental model of what these things mean the rest is completely completely useless right and um there was a second point and i lost it <laughs> uh what did i want to say I don't know. I lost it. There was a second thing I wanted to say.
0: Well, I had a great example of single numbers without that context the other day. And unfortunately, yeah. this is not at my daughter's expense, but uh, I went yeah. to her team's first basketball game of the season and they had a spectacular blowout loss, 30 to two. Mm-hmm. Now I could represent this as a band with percentages and say, my daughter scored 100% of her team's goals. That 100% yeah. sounds very impressive until you realize it's one goal. Um, And in many ways, I I had friends uh, say, like, actually, I think it was a few weeks ago, my wife is like, it says COVID's up 15%. I'm like, but 15% from what? Like, it's the what makes a significant difference there. We're not in, you know, know, April 2000, where that 15% is indicating dramatic rises in actual counts. This might be a handful of people relative to that different point. So understanding, you know, not... Absolute values can be very important when representing percentages, for example.
1: Yeah, yeah, and you are reminding me another point that I think is really important for someone who works with data and has been trying to not only develop an understanding of these issues, but also trying to start teaching these, these issues. Um, what I noticed is that you become way, way more humble because it's so easy to get deceived by these numbers right i whenever you think oh i figured it out now I, I feel strong and then you learn another mistake that you made or another thing that you missed or another statistical fallacy that you were not aware of right so it's really hard to work with number and numbers and now i remember what i want to say uh you mentioned the idea of communicating uncertainty and communicating uh, well, th- there is always a problem that data has this rhetorical power of being perceived as the truth, right, mm-hmm. and being quote unquote objective, right? And when <laughs> I started from that perception and over the years, in fact, even through the podcast, listening to some of the people that we interviewed over the years, I was like, wow, this whole objectivity thing with data is way more complicated, right? And um, so this is a long premise for saying what I wanted to say. What I think is really missing and I would love to see more of is in the world of data and then data visualization is really pieces where um, people just say, hey, it could be this way or it could be this other way. Right. So I'm really fascinated by the concept of data and uh, data communication and data visualizations that try to reduce certainty rather than increase certainty. Right. And um, um, I don't see a lot of that, honestly. I I would love to see more pieces where you say, hey, you think it's like that, but no, wait a minute. is There's this problem. Right. But then as soon as use way more in the other direction, say, like, oh, but maybe no, no, maybe it's you are actually right. right. So kind of like bringing people to this um, journey through uncertainty and really showing, oh, there's some evidence for X. There's also some evidence for Y, <laughs> right? It's frustrating, but I think it's also revealing because that's how most complex things really work. And we don't see much of that, honestly.
0: I, I think with with data, with science, with so many things, we, we want to find truth there and not fact, right? Like we're looking for bigger answers many times than can sometimes be provided by the data or many times our own assumptions, maybe our own lack of humility, our own uh, fear of rejection. If we say that this does not spell out an absolute answer, uh, yeah. Can get in the way, and what what can we do to maybe change the perception of data and help people realize that perhaps data is a small truth T or a big F fact, or however we want to uh, to to change the perception of it. Because uh, look. I created a John Wick kill data set that's out there on uh, Kaggle. I watched three John Wick films and recorded every time he killed someone at what minute he did it in the location. <laughs> there are assumptions in there. There are times when an SUV goes of off a cliffside, and I'm like, well,
1: yeah.
0: I know there were at least two guys in there, you know, yeah, that's, yeah, yeah, yeah. so my John Wick data set, in addition to me spelling Garrot wrong, uh, has flaws in it. Um yeah. and I'll be the first to tell you that. So if uh, my John Wick data set as lovingly and painstakingly collected as it is is wrong, uh, you can bet that many of the data sets that we all encounter every day are as well.
1: Yeah, there are there are very few examples. The the one that comes to mind, there's a There's a blog, unfortunately, I forget the name right now, but I can send you the link once uh, the interview ends. Um, And it's a very long piece. So this blog, they do very long scientific um, pieces, but it's not technical, it's just for for everybody. And there's this very long one on um, obesity, the obesity epidemic. And it's all about that, right? They start as a, oh, it could be, people say that it's that. And then they look at the data, it's like, no, wait a minute, it, it can be that. <laughs> right? They say, oh, but then it could be this other thing. And then they look at the data and say, like, no, it can't be. <laughs> right? And it's like 20 things like that. It's really fascinating. And I wish there was more of the, this kind of rhetorical style to look at data and addressing problems in, in science in general.
0: I think, I think this may be the perfect place for us to close this off. I think we've, we've Mm -hmm. come to a very deeply philosophical place here. (laughs) And I think we, 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 I felt like we had so much swagger early on and now (laughs) we're at the point where, uh, you know, it's, I I think, I think it's important. I think it's, it's important, uh, to, for, for people to, to acknowledge this and to think about it, uh, more seriously. Like I, I appreciate this perspective. I wouldn't have gotten here tonight if it weren't for you. So, uh, (laughs) have I've to the hear, heck hear of, that. Yeah, I've, I've enjoyed the heck out of this conversation. This has been w- even more fun than I thought it would be going into it. Uh, I want to thank you. And I is there anything you would like to shout out or promote uh, to our listeners?
1: Yes. Um. So I've been writing a newsletter. And uh, um, it's almost like going back to the old times of blogging. But now there's a thing called Substack where people can sign up and receive uh, posts in their email or they can see them online if they want to. And uh, it's called FI. So it's an acronym. I'll tell you in a moment what the acronym is, but it's F-I-L-W-D dot Substack dot com. And the acronym starts, actually comes from my first blog that was called Fell in Love with Data. And uh, that's just the acronym. And at some point I decided that I, I didn't really fall in love with data anymore. So I didn't <laughs> I didn't want to use it anymore. And I'm only using the acronym for historical purposes. And um so that's 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 the story behind it. But I I try to publish one long blog post every week. And uh you can also find me on LinkedIn where I tend to kind of like post shorter things that go through my mind and uh so if you're interested in uh learning what i'm doing and uh the ideas that i'm sharing similar to some of the things that we discussed i yeah i normally put them there
0: fantastic check out enrico's blog filwd on substack and uh follow him on instagram for more thank you so much for coming on i know we've done this dance for a while it's uh it's been way better than i ever could have uh, anticipated or planned <laughs> Uh, I really appreciate it, Enrico.
1: Thanks so much. I'm I'm really glad that we finally made it, and it's been real fun to talk with you.